Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. My name is Rishi Patel and I'm the practice lead for policy communications here at Global Council and I'm joined by Alex Dawson, the practice lead for UK politics and policy and Matt Bevington, the senior associate for political due diligence. Today, let's examine the politics and its implications. And after perhaps the most significant set of midterm elections in the UK for many years, we're facing a series of inflection points. The governing party has outperformed the opposition in its heartlands and run a crucial by-election. The future of the UK's constitutional settlement is yet again in the spotlight with a continued strong performance from the SNP in Scotland. And the Labour Party, much like any poorly performing organisation, continues to rethink its vision, mission and values. So I'm delighted to be asking my colleagues today about these questions, about what happened, first of all. So first of all, let's turn to Alex. Um, Alex, what is the significance of the Conservative gains in the Midlands and the North? And... Is this at the expense of the South, perhaps, where they've lost ground in areas like the west of England and Cambridgeshire? Well, I think, um, firstly, uh, I think what we should understand this as is the sort of unwinding of the UKIP and Brexit party votes that sort of dominated in these local elections in 2016, 17, uh, and when it comes to Hartlepool, 2019. Um, electoral performance by the Conservatives. This was the first time really that the Conservatives had a free run a lot of these seats um, uh, without a presence to their right that was distinctly more Eurosceptic, distinctly kind of more populist um, in, you know, really about eight, nine years or so. Uh, And I think that partially contributes to the increase in vote share, uh, the increase in seats that they won, and the increase in councils that they won. It also points to a kind of a, um, the Conservatives' political centre of gravity shifting northwards from the home counties uh, through to the Midlands and the north. Now, the point that you made about uh, conservative losses in the south east and the west uh, such as in bristol with the west of england mayoralty uh, such as in cambridge uh, people will point as well to um, lost seats in oxfordshire county council uh, the conservatives losing seats in worthing losing control of tunbridge wells council um, probably sort of demonstrates a little bit that there is going to be a kind of concern within conservative circles about kind of making sure that that base is still looked after and feels sort of loved and respected and that kind of politicians pay time and attention towards it but that's very much the undercard Uh, and uh, you know kind of part of the purpose of conservative modernization over the last 10-15 years has been precisely to win more seats in the Midlands and the North Uh, and because that's where the electoral gains are. It's where New Labour was based politically, uh, and, you know, Thatcher and Major in the 80s and the 90s did a good job of having a decent presence outside London and the South East. So it it is a concern, but it clearly doesn't outweigh uh, the progress that the government has made, Uh, and we should note just how unusual it is for parties to be winning council seats Mm. and winning councils uh 11 years into government it's 
pretty much unheard of. And by this point, Margaret Thatcher was shipping seats all over the place um, in 1990, uh, you know, and that really didn't stop throughout the 1990s uh, under John Major, uh, similarly with Blair and Brown. So I think we should take it as kind of pretty significant about how politics in the UK is realigning. But obviously, no party strategist would ever say that you should um, rest on your laurels about where your weaknesses are. Thanks. Um, Matt, just let's move on to Labour. So what should we read about Labour's losses over the over the weekend, the Hartlepool by-election and obviously, as Alex was alluding to, losing in its former heartlands? But by contrast, I guess, consolidating in urban areas through victories in the mayoralties. Mm. So I think Hartlepool really just exploded any illusions that there were that the pro Labour's problems in those places were just temporary issues to do with Brexit and Corbyn. Those were clearly factors, but actually these are more structural changes that are unlikely to shift back to Labour anytime soon. I think there was an assumption among the leadership that basically as Brexit disappeared into the rearview mirror, Corbyn out the picture, these voters would come home in inverted commas. So Labour were actually wildly complacent about their ability to win back these voters. And it was kind of a reality check, I think, a reality check that probably shouldn't have needed to be demonstrated. But the fact that it happened, you then saw the, the sort of politics within the party explode over the weekend um, as Labour came to realise that actually the challenge that it's facing is much greater than it thought. It also faced the problems, the specific problem in Hartlepool of being seen as the incumbent, despite the Conservatives having been in government for so long, having had Labour MPs in Hartlepool, having run the council for long periods, they were again finding themselves on the wrong side of a vote for change. And also there were there were specific factors to do with the popularity of Ben Houch and the Conservative mayor for Tees Valley, who also I think lifted Conservative vote, vote share in the area. So overall, a reality check and also a demonstration that the scale of the challenge is still massive in these areas and bigger I think than, than Keir Starmer probably appreciated. On the upside, um, the mayoral contest, there were 13, Labour won 11, it took two from the Conservatives, so in headline terms that's, that's obviously positive for the party, but actually the relative success is as much to do with electoral boundaries as anything, it's the fact that these, these contests are focused around urban centres, which is where Labour's vote share tends to be concentrated anyway, so I don't think it points to any wider popularity of the party in the country, it's, it's something specific about those kinds of contests. And also, they had incumbents in lots of these places that had a degree of credibility in terms of governing that the, that the party nationally doesn't have. Um, and also you, you sort of saw in Greater Manchester specifically a kind of halo effect. This is this also happened in Tees Valley, but the popularity of Andy Burnham managed to lift Labour across the whole Greater Manchester area in terms of local authority performance. Um, so I think overall some good results for the party in isolation, but actually nothing that's sufficient to indicate that their general election performance would be much improved. Thanks. And it's an interesting point you made about Andy Burnham, and it goes to my next question to Alex, which is this view that people who have been in the media or governments, I guess, who you know have been on the press conferences every day about COVID have, have performed well in this election. So, Alex, let's look at Scotland and Wales. And what can we infer from the relative, I guess, electoral stasis in, in, in these two? And, you know, what, what was happening in in Scotland and Wales. We'll talk about Scottish independence afterwards, I guess, as well. Well, look, I think there are two features to pay attention to here. Uh, first is there is a certain element of rising tide lifts all boats. We've had um, kind of broad support actually for kind of the government's main priority over the last year, which has been tackling the 
COVID pandemic. Uh, furlough has been an incredibly popular policy. Lockdowns were a very popular policy. Uh, and obviously you've got the vaccination drive at the moment where the UK is perceived to have had uh, you know, the, probably the superlative vaccine rollout apart from uh, Israel. Uh, and when people are getting texts from the NHS saying it's time for your jab, I think it's very difficult to mount a case that the incumbent government isn't doing a very good job. Uh, and so I think you've kind of had a sort of a, a consequential boost in respect of that for Boris Johnson. I think it's probably the case as well for Nicola Sturgeon and Mark Drakeford. And in fact, you know, one of the constant problems that the Conservatives had, have had in Scotland in particular is um, reminding people uh, in Scotland that furlough is a Westminster policy uh, and also at the same time kind of problems in the NHS more broadly is not necessarily to do with Westminster. Um, I think this kind of highlights the second point that I want to make in regards to this, which is that uh, it's a truism for a reason that all politics is local. And you've seen probably the most effective campaigners over the last um, few years have kind of had a very sort of local tinge and bent to their campaigns. Uh, Mark Drakeford positioned himself as Cardiff against uh, Westminster to an extent, similarly Andy Burnham. Sadiq Khan, who's probably been a little bit more um, kind of uh, hasn't had quite as kind of clear and defining message of, you know, his London sort of um, Pro you know, you could certainly say that Mark Drakeford, Andy Burnham, Nicola Sturgeon all represent their localities in a way that probably Sadiq Khan has struggled to do over the course of the last few years, partly because he's been stuck in negotiations with the government over a bailout for TfL. And I think that's kind of a feature that has run through these elections and something where, um, you know, politicians in future are going to look to try and root themselves in their local area, campaigning against Westminster, uh, campaigning against kind of remote centres of power uh, as an effective um, as, as an effective mechanism to get yourself re-elected. And arguably, that's what Boris Johnson did in 2019. He said, Westminster's broken. The only way that you can fix it is by voting for me, and I will deliver Brexit through the teeth of people who are opposing it because they don't listen to your voice. I guess the, the sort of the biggest local issue shall we say is that of Scottish independence and the big question I guess that's on the minds of many of our participants on the calls a lot of our clients a lot of investors into the UK is you know the, the basic question of based on what's happened now how likely Alex do you think that Scottish independence can be achieved in the coming years and what is the pathway to that? Um, well so I think what we should note is that there's a effectively there's an impasse uh, the SNP has a doesn't have a majority outright in the Scottish Parliament, but with the Greens, it could probably pass a referendum bill saying we should have the power to have a referendum. Uh, now, the problem with that is that and the reason we're in an impasse is that the Scottish Parliament doesn't actually have that power uh, legally. And the UK government would most likely challenge the Scottish government over the constitutionality of the Scottish Parliament legislating in that area. Uh, uh, and that kind of sets the stage for, you know, a forthcoming period of trench warfare, metaphorically speaking, uh, 
over this question of Scottish independence or not. Um, if the SNP sort of stick to their plans and if the SNP win in court or the Scottish government wins in the Supreme Court over its right to hold a referendum, they've said that they would want to hold one uh, probably not before the end of 2023, but maybe shortly after that, um, once the COVID recovery is sort of done and handled. Uh, and, you know, then on those terms, they would be, you know, they would argue that they would be able to be independent within the next four or five years. Realistically, though, I think it's going to be a struggle for Nicola Sturgeon to genuinely pull the trigger on another referendum, on, on another independence referendum, unless she's absolutely sure that she's going to win it. And what you're going to try and see both sides do is mechanistically increase support for their, uh, for their position, both on the unionist side and the independent side um, over the coming years. Because once you end up with, uh, you know, the people around Nicola Sturgeon call it the settled will of the Scottish people being around 60% in favour of independence for a substantial period of time, they think, well, now, now we're going to call the referendum because we know that we'll win. Similarly, Michael Gove leading it from the UK government side, but figures like Gordon Brown, the leader of the Scottish Conservatives, the leader of Scottish Labour, will all be trying to find ways of reducing the number of people who want to back independence. And it, it's going to be, I think, what what the what the result on Thursday showed, where basically there was no real change in terms of uh the, the the levels of support within the parliament for the parties is that actually you've got quite entrenched views and it's going to be difficult to find anything that really changes the dial uh on public opinion which has rested which has floated between 45 and 55 uh in support of independence for the last seven eight years so really shifting the hearts and minds of the people is the first priority of the Scottish people, I should say. Um, let's move move south of the borders, Alex, and talk a bit more about UK government policy. I mean, we're going to be talking about this more on Wednesday morning, but what, what do you think these elections tell us about the direction of travel for the government in terms of its sort of broad fiscal and monetary policy um, commitments? And I, I should link that actually to a question that we've had um, through from Jonathan Dunn, which says the policies have been popular, um, furlough, vaccination, but it's been involved very large amounts of public money. And what do you expect to happen to the greater fiscal landscape as this takes hold? Um, well, I think that's a really good question. Uh, the first, because of what happened in Hartlepool on Thursday, the first question that passes ministers' lips when their, a policy is proposed to them or strategist's lips is, how is this going to play in Hartlepool, in the Tees Valley, in the Northeast, in the sorts of places that we won last time and that we need to win in future? Uh, and that probably points to um, a greater focus on uh, continued borrowing to spend on infrastructure uh, and kind of one-off capital spending because roads, schools and hospitals are all popular, uh, particularly up there where they need to, where the government needs to demonstrate it's keeping its promise to people. And it's, this was a, this was a theme before the pandemic struck. This was a theme in the immediate aftermath of the 2019 election. It will not diminish in future. Um, it probably also means that there's going to be, in terms of current spending, a bit more focus on the things which are um, things like, for, in, for instance, skills policy, health building policy, uh, where there's a perception that 
uh, you know, leveling up involves making sure that people with non-university degrees have good technical jobs to go into that pay well, that um, also kind of keep the sort of the center of the city and stop the brain drain uh, down into London um, from sort of being perpetuated. Um, however, this does all pose a challenge because you still have a conservative in the treasury who wants to make sure that there is a current accounting, um, you know, that there is a kind of a current budget sort of, if not deficit, if not surplus, it wants to be in balance. Um, you have a problem in that you've got a great deal of backlog when it comes to public services as a consequence of COVID. Um, sort of cancer referrals uh, is kind of, you know, an example of that, but it happens across the public sector, whether it's um, performance of jails and the criminal justice system, whether it's actually kind of uh, children who've fallen behind in their uh, academic progress over the course of the last year, that's going to be a drain on resources. A drain on resources, it sounds kind of a pejorative, but that's, you know, that is going to cost a lot of money that the government is then not going to be able to spend on its priorities, its promises that it made in the manifesto in 2019. Uh, combined with the fact that you've then got a load of discretionary spend to achieve net zero, um, to do levelling up, uh, where they're going to have to find cash from. And that is going to probably mean that you're going to have tax rises, uh, you know, in order to kind of bring the deficit down. And those tax rises are not going to fall, you know, they're not going to want to make them fall uh, on the good voters of Hartlepool who just entrusted their, you know, their future with the government. Uh, so I think you should see probably kind of hidden costs coming through in terms of billing uh, when it comes to uh, the energy transition. Uh, we should expect to see uh, taxation sort of rises falling on companies. Um, and I think we should see any headroom that's kind of delivered through extra growth uh, as a consequence of our, you know, a faster reopening or a better reopening um, being spent on uh, reversing the income tax rises that the government has promised from 2023 onwards, rather than on um, uh, reducing the kind of the corporation tax hike that is also planned for that period. I should also say, just as a final thing, if the political centre of gravity for the Conservatives is shifting sort of northwards from the southeast, I think it probably relatively sort of um, reduces the political imperative to tackle issues that are particularly keenly felt in the southeast, where you've got high property prices. Um, and, and on the industries that rely on, uh, you know, or, or that are dominant in those areas. So I think you should probably sort of expect to see less focus on uh, opening up uh, uh, access to markets for services. I also think we're probably likely to see less of a focus on trying to tackle high housing costs and how that works uh, with regards to the social care system. Um, that's not to say that work is going to entirely stop on these things. It's not but it's going to be less of a political priority. Thank you. Finally, in, the, in the, the, the time that we have left, we should ask the difficult questions about the future of the Labour Party. And I'll turn to Matt to talk, be talking about this. So the first is, Matt, we've had an overnight reshuffle um, by Keir Starmer, and we've got a new shadow chancellor in Rachel Reeves. I think you know our clients are expecting thinking you know what should we expect from her I guess and if you could give us sort of a bit more color about the direction of travel from a personnel perspective I mean the party 
perhaps even the lack of key figures that have changed that would um that would i think be of interest to people <clears throat> well i think the first thing to say about rachel reeves is that she's definitely seen as being on the right of the party um annalise dodds her predecessor was seen as being very neutral supported by the left though not identifying with them so in that sense it probably indicates a slight rightward shift although i think to be honest that uh, Rachel Reeves' economic thesis is not really all that different to Annalise Dodds. It's, all, it's still about um, insecure work, insecure housing, uh, underfunded public services as being the main priorities and the main concerns, and that having put the UK in a bad place before leave, heading into a pandemic. So I don't think there's all, all that much change in terms of what Labour sees as being the big economic challenges and problems heading forward. Probably the biggest change was Labour's identification over the weekend. Uh, in a couple of days of the future of work as being their, the central plank of their policy platform going forward. I mean, in some senses, it's progress in that they've identified something that they think is the one priority, um, but they put Angela Rayner in charge of it. And she is, I think, probably likely to head in, in a more leftward direction on that particular agenda. She's a former union rep. Um, she's likely to focus more on protecting workers rather than on job creation, issues such as precarious employment, gig economy, zero hours contracts raising the minimum wage, even possibly union legislation. Those are the types of things that I think are likely to come up as part of that work. So I think there's a sort of slight rightward shift with Reeves, but then I think probably a more leftward shift with Rayner in charge of that policy agenda. And then I think politically, um, the, the most important appointment was probably not even to do with his MPs. It was the appointment of um, Deborah Mattinson as, as his strategy director. She's a former advisor to Gordon Brown, has done a lot of work on the sort of red wall seats, a lot of research. She's literally written the book on the red wall and she's advising now on strategy to, to do with winning back row seats. That I think is probably a sensible appointment. The extent to which she can influence the direction of travel on policy and communications obviously um, remains to be seen. But I think more broadly, um, the party's just continues to talk to the extremes of the uh, of the income spectrum. It's very, you know, obviously very concerned with the bottom 10%, but it, it directs its attacks at the top 10%. And that leaves a huge swathe of people in the middle that it doesn't really speak to. And that's really the structural issue, issue that it has. And I think is a hangover from the Corbyn era, era and doesn't really point to much change actually substantively since Starmer took over. And I think in terms of Starmer himself, he is substantially weakened after the, after the weekend. And it's less to do, I think, with the results themselves than his handling of it his handling of, of the reshuffle. So with his positioning within the party, I think is much weaker than it was. And his reputation much more widely among the public is, is, is has taken a hit as well, because I think he was seen as a sort of steady hand, but his reaction was um, anything but that, frankly. And it's worth remembering actually that he's in quite a vulnerable position in the party. Because Labour lost so many seats at the last election, to challenge him, it requires about 40 MPs. And the sort of Corbynite wing is around 30 MPs. So the leap from that from that group to enough to challenge the leadership is not very big. And with the, the Batley and Spend by-election coming up, it could be another defeat for Labour. It could be more pressure on Starmer. You know, it, he's likely to come under much more pressure over the next few months. And he's not in a very secure position, which is actually why I think Ange Angela Rayner was able to establish herself over the weekend uh, and sort of impose her will on, on him uh, rather than the other way around. Alex, did you want to come in? Well, yeah, well. I was going to say Conservative MPs were probably kind of most worried in terms of the leadership candidates uh, back in 2020 uh, by Keir Starmer. Uh, and I think now 
now they can smell blood to be honest mm. uh, and they're going to be in a happy position and if there was a if there was a full parliament back for the queen's speech on tomorrow i mean they would have let Keir Starmer know what they thought about him uh, and I suspect Boris Johnson's going to have a great deal of fun at the Queen's speech debates and obviously that's a Westminster concern and it's a small concern but it speaks to a wider confidence that the Conservatives have that they're on the right track and they're on the right path and that they know where they're going uh, in a way that Labour doesn't and in terms of this stuff I was talking about earlier about you know 10, 15 years of work to win over seats like Dudley, the council that they took um, on Thursday, or a number of these seats actually in the northeast where they've constantly thought, actually, there's probably a chance here that we can kind of edge into Labour territory. Uh, that's been years and years and years in the making. And the fact that Labour doesn't sort of seem to have a great deal of analysis about where its electoral future lies and hasn't even sort of started to think that there might be choices to be made about, you know, trading off um, the concerts of this world for the Canterbury's of it, uh, seems to me to be quite striking, probably most problematic for Keir Starmer and the, the, the shadow cabinet team that's around him. Indeed. I think we'll end with a, a fun question, I guess, to both of you from me, which is, you know, what would be your one big takeaway from the, the, the various elections and various things that we've talked about for clients when they're thinking, you know, in the next week and the next month about decisions that they're making? Alex first. Um, I think you're going to just see a wider range of things become political as an issue uh, as a consequence of this uh, and actually the decisions taken over the last few years where British ministers now have a range of powers that didn't exist beforehand, whether that's because of things that they've um, taken back control of for one of a less politically loaded term via Brexit. But also, actually, if you look at things like the Internal Markets Act, actually, Westminster government has powers now to spend in Scotland and Wales. Uh, and I think there's a sense that they will not want to miss the, miss the moment when it comes to COVID recovery. Uh, and actually making sure that this realignment is permanent from a UK government perspective uh, and similarly kind of challenging what goes on in Scotland and Wales a little bit more. So I think things are going to be kind of more broadly political, whether that's transactions or just kind of policy areas. I think there is a mood for innovative thinking because actually the vaccine rollout was, they credit as a bit of innovative policy thinking and delivery. Uh, and they're going to try and find ways of harnessing that for other sectors. Um, so I would just kind of look at the map of where you're operating uh, and look at how it might play into what the UK government is trying to do, or perhaps play mm -hmm. against what the UK government is trying to do, because actually the ministers are kind of much more sort of self-confident about using the kind of the bully pulpit of A, office, and B, we're not the same old Tories that we used to be before. Um, so a lot so of yeah. opportunities and risks, I, I guess, in that yeah, sort of definitely. innovative policy agenda. Definitely. And Matt, what would you what would you say? You've got the last word today. Well, I think I think the elections point to the fact that my assumption going in was that the next general election, the most likely outcome, is probably a reduced Conservative majority, and I don't I don't think that's changed. So I think what you're seeing from the current government is likely to persist uh, for quite a long time. 
Um, obviously, the particular policy program, the sort of sustainability of it depends on the particular program. Um, but yeah, I think we should settle in for this being the sort of policy landscape heading for he heading forward for the next few years and beyond. And there's very little indication that it's likely to change substantially from outside the party. Whether there is a sort of impetus within the party to take a different direction is another question. Um, but in terms of uh, the Conservatives' policy and political strategy so far, it's working very well, and I think it's likely to continue. Great. Well, that's all we've got time for for today. Thank you, everyone, for um, participating, and to Alex and Matt for their contributions. If you have got any further questions, feel free to get in touch with any of us, and we look forward to hearing from you all. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.